Well, again, good morning. Glad to have you here. If you're joining us online, welcome. Uh, before we get started, I just need to clarify one thing uh, so that we're all understanding. I don't know if you've ever received a gift that you're like really don't like, uh, and you're maybe really not even sure what to do with it, uh, but you actually really like the person that gave it to you and care about their feelings and that kind of, you, we know the situation. <laughs> I, I, just clarifying right out of the shoe. This, this is about love for individuals, not love for cats at all. Anyway, uh, just wanted to get that straight so we all know where we're coming from. No, not, not a lost bet, just a love for my daughter and my wife. So anyway, um, growing up, uh, we lived in Idaho. My grandparents lived here, both sets of grandparents lived here in the Seattle area. So what that meant for us was lots of long road trips growing up. And so uh, when I was young, when you were young, probably you remember there were no iPads. There were no tablets. There were no gaming systems to pass the time. You just had to figure out how to pass the time with things like the alphabet game or the license plate game or 30 questions. And you probably remember that those were all very boring and barely helpful, right? So those were long trips. And my parents figured out, like, the more times that we stopped, the longer it would take. And so they would attempt to just keep us moving, keep us moving. And so my mom had to get real creative whenever we would announce that we were thirsty, because you know what thirst leads to, right? Uh, and, and we were always thirsty. I mean, you put three little bored boys in the back of a crammed station wagon, and we didn't have AC, which meant the windows were down, and apparently we were all mouth breathers, so like we would get really thirsty, and my parents didn't want to have to stop for us to pee all the time, and so my mom came up with a very obvious solution for thirst. I mean, whenever we would announce that we were thirsty, my mom's response was, eat a carrot. So I actually grew up thinking that you could quench your thirst by eating a carrot. I, I imagine the embarrassment when one of my buddies is like, I am thirsty, and I was like handing him a carrot, right? Like later on, I recognized it was just to keep us from having to pee. So don't try, don't, don't, don't eat carrots to quench your thirst, it doesn't work. We all get thirsty. We all need water in our lives. Our body is made up of about 55 to 60% water. We can't live without water, and, and oftentimes we don't even realize how bad dehydration can be for us and the problems it can create. I mean, when we're dehydrated, uh, we can get headaches, we can get muscle cramps, our, our brains will actually start to shut down. We need water to be able to think. We need water to be able to keep our bodies running. We get lethargic and our bodies shut down when we don't have enough water. When we get thirsty. This morning I want to look at a moment in Jesus' life where he actually admitted, I'm thirsty. Which, which really doesn't seem like all that big of a deal. Like, right? Okay, well, he's thirsty. We all get thirsty. Why would it, why would it matter? What, what, is it, what is the impact on my life and on your life that Jesus would ever admit that he was thirsty? And this morning we're continuing with our series called Living Out Love. And the attempt is, how can we discover how you and I can best love those around us? What we want to see is how can we become the best versions of ourselves so that we can continually be loving, living out love and, and impacting those that we come in contact with on a daily basis. And so we've been looking at these seven statements that Jesus made just prior to his death on the cross. And we're picking up the story today in a place where he's now been on the cross for about six hours. 
And there isn't much left in this part of the process. There isn't much left in him being crucified. Um, He is actually on the cross shorter than most. Many times crucifixions could take up to days for the individual to die. I mean, it's just a horrible way of being tortured. But for Jesus, he's now been on the cross for about six hours. And he recognizes that his body is about to quit. He's He's gone through all kinds of beatings before he got there, all kinds of torture. All of this has led to him not being able to withstand crucifixion very long. And Jesus has three more statements that he's about to make, and this statement that we're going to look at today is the first of those three. But he makes these three statements just before he dies, just before his time is up. And in this process, Jesus is about to say something that can transform the way that we look at who he is. It's going to be on the screen. It's also in your message notes. This is what Jesus says. Uh, His friend John actually records this. It says this. It says, After this, Jesus knew that everything had been completed. So that the scripture would come true, he said, I am thirsty. There was a full jar of vinegar there, so the soldiers soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a a branch of hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' mouth. Now here's what's interesting. Um, Six hours before this, six hours before this, when the soldiers were in the process of putting Jesus on the cross, or just after they had, they offered him something to drink, and Jesus turned him down. There's another account by another friend of Jesus, a guy by the name of Mark, who tells us that after Jesus was nailed to the cross, and after they raised the cross and they put it up into place, the soldiers offered him something to drink. What we need to know is it's not the same drink that has now been offered to him. Six hours earlier, when they offered him something to drink, they were offering something that was was basically this wine mixture mixed with myrrh. If you're familiar with the story of Jesus' birth, you remember that the wise men brought myrrh to Jesus. And myrrh was something that was oftentimes given to people that were dying, that were in the process of a painful death. So they didn't have Advil, and they didn't have Oxycontin, and they didn't have Vicodin. They didn't have anything like that. So they would mix myrrh, and it would become this narcotic that would sort of help people as they were going through pain. But it wasn't a humanitarian effort by the soldiers. This wasn't some sort of kind gesture. The soldiers were basically recognizing that crucifixion is excruciating. And it often, as I mentioned before, it would go on for hours and hours and oftentimes days and days. And for the soldiers, what that meant is they had to stay there the entire time until this person on the cross would die. And oftentimes, these people that were on the cross, they would be screaming in agony for hours. And the soldiers just didn't want to hear the screams. The soldiers were basically like, listen, okay, we've nailed you to the cross, Jesus, or whatever the criminal is. We want you to drink some myrrh so we don't have to listen to you. It wasn't for the benefit of the person being killed. It was for the benefit of the soldier. They just didn't want to hear the agony of the individual on the cross and the screams that would last for hours. But Jesus turned that drink down. Ultimately, Jesus wanted to experience the full impact of the fact that he was about to carry the sins for all mankind. Jesus was like, basically, listen, I, I want to die in the process of carrying the sins of the world, and I don't want to do it in a drug state. Jesus basically wanted to have all of his faculties in full working condition so that he could experience every aspect of the physical and the emotional pain. And so he had refused the drink that would have put him in sort of a drug state. But now Jesus knows that it's almost over. He recognizes that his body is about to shut down. He's about to die. And so in this moment, he declares, I'm thirsty. So what I want us to consider then is what is it that we learn about Jesus through this statement? There's three things I think we learn about this. And we need to recognize that this is the very first moment that Jesus has made any statements about his pain or his condition. 
Jesus has been beaten for hours. He was tortured. They took a crown of thorns and they crushed it into his skull, sunk the thorns down into his head. They spit on him. He was whipped with what is known as a cat of nine tails. Forty different times they ran it across his back, which basically meant he had 360 lacerations across his back before he even got put on the cross. He's now gone about 12 hours without any water, reaching dehydration, all kinds of blood loss. He hasn't slept for 24 hours, and now, in this moment, he decides, I'm thirsty, I need a drink. And the Bible doesn't really explain why for practical reasons, but I think, as we're about to see over the next couple of weeks, he's about to issue his final words. And I think Jesus didn't want us to miss those words. And I hope you're here in the next two weeks because these words are so powerful as we look at what he shouted out at the end. But this morning he says, I'm thirsty. I think there's three reasons why. There's a theological reason, there's a prophetic reason, and there's a personal reason. Let's start with a theological reason for why he would say that. The theological reason is it revealed Jesus truly was human. There's this idea that maybe Jesus wasn't actually human. Maybe he wasn't truly a person. Maybe he was just God with sort of this human skin that wasn't fully a human being. Sort of maybe like this, this half-man, half-God, sort of demigod, mythological creature. But what I've discovered is that God's math is nothing like our math. Right? We tend to think that, that if something is 100%, then it's, that's it. But, but Jesus was 100% God, and at the same time, he was 100% human. So that's 200% if you're not good at math. And normally, 200% isn't a thing until it comes to Jesus. He is 100% both. The Bible describes what we call as the incarnation, and here's the way the Bible describes it. It says this. It says, Jesus gave up his place with God and made himself nothing. He was born to be a man and became a servant. And when he was living as a man, he humbled himself and was, and was fully obedient to God, even when that caused his death on the cross. And this statement that Jesus makes, I am thirsty, it actually counters a belief that was present at that time. Uh, it's, a, it's a belief called docetism or docetism. Basically, it's this idea that, that the body of Jesus was an illusion, that he wasn't actually a man. The, the word docet comes from a Greek word that is actually, or docet is a Greek word that means to seem. So he seemed to be a man, or he appeared to be human. And the idea was that, he, that, that God would never actually humble himself enough to become man. But this is telling us Jesus was willing to step down from his spot in heaven as God and enter into our world. There's religions today that would actually speak to the opposite side of that that would say Jesus was fully man, he just wasn't fully God. That he was this amazing person, he was this prophet that was representing God. But it's so important for you and I to understand that he truly was both. He truly was 100% man, he truly was 100% God. Because it's, it's his humanity, it's the fact that he was thirsty that allowed him to live, it allowed him to know, it allowed him to experience what you and I have experienced. It allowed him the opportunity to experience temptation of sin. His godness, the fact that he was God, allowed him then to live perfect, to live a sinless life. It was his humanity that allowed him to get hungry, allowed him to be tired, allowed him to experience emotions, allowed him to get thirsty, ultimately allowed him to die. And we miss out on 
who Jesus truly is when we deny his humanity. And we miss out on who Jesus truly is when we uh, deny his divinity. When we don't recognize both, we miss out on that. And this claim that he's thirsty reveals his humanity. It also reveals that Jesus was the promised Messiah. In the Old Testament, for thousands of years, God was saying, listen, I'm going to send you a Savior. For thousands of years, he's like, I'm going to send a Messiah. I'm going to send someone that's going to change it all. It's going to make it all better. I'm going to send the Savior of the world. And throughout the Old Testament, we come across 380 predictions, 380 prophecies about the Messiah, about what he would be and what he would do and where he would be born. Ultimately, God was trying to say, like, this is how you will know that this is the guy. Because there's been lots of individuals that have come and claimed to be the Son of God, or claimed to be the Savior, or claimed to have the answers. But it's these predictions that allow us to know. It's these prophecies, these 380 prophecies, that allow us to know that the individual that comes and fulfills every single one of these, that's the guy. It's basically the ultimate game of horse. Do you know horse? The basketball shooting game? Have you played horse? And sh- in horse, like, you know, basically the way her horse works is if you make a shot, then I have to match it. I have to make that same shot. And if I miss, then I get a letter. Spell horse, whoever spells horse loses. Well, once you start playing a more complicated game of horse, like let's say you start adding in trick shots. Like let's say you decide, you know what, this next shot can't touch the rim. It's got to be all net. You got to call it. You can't just shoot it up there, swish, and be like, okay, you got to swish it. You got you to say it ahead of time. If you want to bounce the ball off the floor and off the wall and into the hoop, you got to call it ahead of time. You can't, you can't just do it. you got to predict it. you got to say, this is the shot that I'm about to accomplish, and so that you know that I actually could do it, I'm going to say it beforehand, and now I'm going to do it, and now you've got to repeat it. So basically what God did is he called his shot 380 times, and then he made each and every one of those shots. He proved it each and every time that Jesus is the Messiah. And actually, this statement where Jesus says, I am thirsty, and then they follow up by offering him vinegar, that's one of the shots, one of the predictions. Over a thousand years before this, in Psalm 69, it was written this. It said, when I was thirsty, they offered me vinegar. That's crazy. A thousand years before we write this down, and the writer would have no idea how that's going to happen. The writer had no idea the process. And actually what happened is the soldiers would, uh, would oftentimes offer, at some point, they would offer what's called Posca, or Posca. And this was a drink, Posca was basically the drink of the people, the poor people, for about 300 years during the Roman Empire. And what they would end up doing is they would take wine that had soured, basically wine that had spoiled, that had become a vinegar. And then they would mix that with different herbs, and they would try to, like, reduce some of the nastiness of it. They would actually add water to it because water tasted horrible, but it was a way to get water into your system. So they would kind of use it all. And so then this posca essentially became a drink that oftentimes Roman soldiers would have in their canteen. So it was a very popular drink that people recognized and people knew about. It was cheap, and so soldiers oftentimes had access to it. And ultimately allowed this prediction to happen. It's what the soldiers had. And so when Jesus said, I'm thirsty, they're like, all right, here you go. But it was this powerful symbol that through his words of, I am thirsty, and that having that vinegar drink available, it allows you and I to know that Jesus was man. It allows us to know that Jesus was God. It also allows us to know that he is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. It was one of the 380 predictions. 
and it's fulfilled in the last seconds of his life. The last thing we learn about Jesus with the statement of, I'm thirsty, is it reveals how much Jesus loves each of us. Jesus is choosing to go through all of that pain for me. Jesus is going through all of this pain for you. Getting to the point where he's just desperate for a drink. This is what is known as redemptive suffering. He's, he's redeeming something else through his own suffering. Jesus hadn't done anything wrong. Jesus didn't deserve to be punished. He hadn't sinned. He had lived a perfect life. And now he's choosing to suffer for the benefit of someone else. Suffering for me and, and suffering for you. This process of redemptive suffering so that you and I would have the right to be redeemed and have a relationship with God. An early church leader explained it in a letter that he wrote to the Roman church. He said this, God demonstrated his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When Jesus died, he didn't know if we'd agree to it. He didn't know if we'd agree to the plan. As he was taking on the sin of the world and dying in our place, we hadn't yet decided if we were going to actually accept his offer to die in our place. But he's like, I'm going to take a shot. Jesus hoped that we would notice his incredible action of love. That we'd then choose to respond. That we'd let him cover for us. That we would allow his death to be the payment that we needed. And then as a response, that we would choose to love him in return. That was his love in action. That was Jesus living out love in the most tangible possible way. During the life of Mother Teresa, uh, she was oftentimes building and establishing houses where, where people that were, were in the process of dying painful deaths where they could go and, and, and be cared for. That they could go and, and as they passed away, somebody would be giving them compassion and care. And, and in each of those houses that Mother Teresa put together, um, she would hang a picture of Jesus on the cross. And underneath it, it would be the words, I thirst. She would explain that the reason that she did this was because she wanted the work that she was a part of. She wanted the ministry that she was doing. She didn't want to just be nice and kind. She wanted what she was a part of to be associated with the thirst that Jesus had on the cross. With the thirst that was so deep that he was trying to do it for the love of others. She said the thirst of Christ on the cross needed to be associated with love in action. And really, everything that we've talked about this morning is beneficial for us to understand about who Jesus is. I mean, it's important that we know the theological aspect behind it and what it is that he came to accomplish and the impact that he can have on our life. But what I want us to really consider this morning about this statement of, I am thirsty, is how can that help you and I as we live out our, as we make efforts to be living out love? How can you and I begin to live this out in action? So here's what we need to see. I want us to begin to see what is it that we can learn about the thirst that Jesus came to solve. Mother Teresa makes this point that, that the thirst of Jesus on the cross needs to be associated with love and action. So what you and I need to recognize is that when we go to work on Monday morning, the people around us are spiritually thirsty. That, that when you go home to your house today, the people that live in your neighborhood are spiritually thirsty. That when you go to the grocery store, when you go to the soccer game, or where every, everywhere that you go, there are people around you that are spiritually thirsty. And, and nobody's ever going to say, well, I'm really spiritually thirsty today. Right? right? Have you ever? Nobody, nobody says that. 
But there are other ways that we acknowledge or that people acknowledge a spiritual thirst. It's statements like, man, I'm, I'm really unfulfilled. I'm just bored with life. I'm just super frustrated with how things are going for me. There's got to be more to life than this, right? I'm so in over my head. It's hanging by a thread. I'm about to go under. I think I'm going to throw in the towel. There's got to be more to life than this, right? Why does it seem like it lacks so much meaning? Like, all of these things are, are statements that speak to a spiritual thirst. Maybe they're like, I don't, I don't even know what's missing. I just, I haven't found it. Maybe they say, I can't get no satisfaction. You might even sing about it, right? But all of these statements lead to the fact that there is a spiritual thirst. 700 years before Jesus even shows up, a prophet was writing about this thirst. His name is Amos, and he wrote about this thirst. He said this, he said, the time is coming when I, he's speaking for God, the time is coming when I will send famine on the land. People will be hungry, but not for bread. They will be thirsty, but not for water. They will hunger and thirst for a message from the Lord. People will stagger everywhere from sea to sea, searching for the word of the Lord, running here and going there, but they will not find it. Beautiful girls and fine young men will grow faint and weary, thirsty for the Lord's word. Celebrities, beautiful people, people that have it all together. Like, it doesn't really matter. We still find ourselves empty and searching for the hope that only Jesus offers. It doesn't matter how good you look. It doesn't matter how healthy you feel. It doesn't matter how nice your car looks or how many commas you have in your checking account balance. Every single one of us will remain thirsty. We will grow faint. We will grow weary until we find the answer that Jesus provides. And so there's a couple of ideas that we have to remember that we need to consider when we come across people in our lives and people in our neighborhoods and our communities that are spiritually thirsty. The first thing that we need to consider is this, is that it's tough for a physically thirsty person to recognize, uh, it is tough for a physically thirsty person to recognize they are spiritually thirsty. There was a follower by the name of Jesus. His name was Doug Nichols, and it was about 1965, 67 or so, and he went to India because he wanted to share the message of Jesus. So he shows up in India, and his process or his idea was that he was going to learn the language of Hindi uh, so that he could begin communicating to the people, but before he can actually learn the language, he contracts tuberculosis. He has to go live in a sanitarium for months in order to get healed. So he goes to the sanitarium, and he, he doesn't speak any Hindi, and so he thought, well, I can still try to share with people the message of Jesus, and so he starts trying to pass out the Christian literature that he had brought along. It was, it was translated into the language of the people, and so he started trying to give it to other patients. He started trying to give it to doctors and nurses. Nobody would take it. He would smile and hand it, and just everybody politely refused, and we're like, we don't need your stuff. One night, Doug's asleep, and, and he woke up coughing from the tuberculosis. He just couldn't manage it, and he was coughing, and he was going through one of his coughing spells. And he, as he sat up in his bed trying to get through this cough, he noticed an older gentleman on the other side of the room that was much sicker than he was, and this older gentleman was trying to get out of bed. And he was sitting up on the edge, and he was trying to get the momentum to get out of bed, and he was trying to stand up, and every time he stood, he just fell back in his weakness. And eventually, the old man just gave up and, and crawled back into his bed exhausted, unable to crawl out of his bed, and he just began crying. Next morning, Doug realized what was going on. This older gentleman was just trying to get out of bed to get to the restroom. 
hadn't made it, and now the stench of what had happened in his bed was just filling the entire ward. It was awful. Other patients started yelling at this old man, hurling insults at him. The nurses came in and just started moving him around really roughly, trying to clean him up. At, at one point, Doug saw one of the nurses hit the gentleman. When they were all done cleaning him up, the old man again just curled up into a ball and cried. Later that night, Doug wakes up again in one of his coughing spells. And as he's coughing, he begins to look across the room. And, and he notices the old man is trying to get up out of his bed again. And in his same process as the night before, he tries to get up. He can't get up. keeps falling back in bed. No luck. So Doug decides to climb out of his bed, heads over to the man, and then touches him on the shoulder. And as he touches him on the shoulder, the gentleman, he wait, his eyes wide open, thinking somebody's come to beat him or something, not sure what's going on. And Doug just politely smiled at him and then slid his arms under this old, frail, weak gentleman and picked him up, carried him over to this filthy, terrible room, just simply had a hole in it. They called it the restroom man was able to go to the restroom and, and take care of that, and then Doug picked him back up and carried him to bed, and, it, and as Doug laid him back in the bed, the gentleman stretched his face out and kissed Doug on the cheek and smiled and said something in a language Doug didn't recognize. Doug went to bed, and the next morning as Doug woke up, another patient approached Doug with a hot cup of tea, gave Doug the tea, and then, and then motioned to Doug, like, could I have one of those pamphlets you've been passing out about whatever it is you're passing out? As the day moved on, other patients started approaching Doug and saying, hey, we'd like whatever it is you've got. We'd like to read that stuff. N nobody had been interested before. But throughout the day, nurses and interns and doctors kept coming up saying, hey, could we have one of your booklets about Jesus? Weeks later, another pastor visited the sanitarium. A pastor who was in the area or from the area, he spoke both Hindi and English, and he had visited different people, and at the end, he ends up talking with Doug. He begins to explain to Doug that several of the people that had taken those booklets had put their trust in Jesus. That in that process of reading about who Jesus is, they, they recognized that they needed him to be their savior. Nobody was interested in Doug's booklets when he first arrived. Nobody cared about what he had to say. It wasn't until Doug began to address some of their physical needs they even considered being open to their spiritual needs. Jesus spoke about this thirst even before he died on the cross. This is what Jesus said. Jesus said, people soon become thirsty again after drinking this water, just regular old water, but the water I gave them takes away thirst altogether. It becomes a perpetual spring within them, giving them eternal life. People around us are desperately going to pursue their basic needs. And until we can help pursue or help meet some of those basic needs, they won't even listen to what we have to say about their spiritual need. And so when we begin to love those around us, when we begin to look to meet the basic need, that's when we can begin to actually earn the right to speak about the spiritual need and the solution that Jesus can provide and the fact that he can provide a water that, that never runs out. And the tricky thing is in our culture, water really isn't missing. Right? Like, we know that around the world there's, there's millions of people that don't have water, but right here we're good. But what people are missing is compassion. People are lacking friendship. They're lacking people that will be generous in their life. They're missing people that will actually spend time and talk with them. And if we don't figure out how to care about people as people, 
if all we see them is as a lost soul, they will just ignore us. They will just be like, well, if all you think of is uh, I'm a tick mark on your list of people to go tell about it. Until people recognize that, that we truly care about who they are, they won't receive anything that we have to say. And we compromise our opportunity to share about what Jesus has done in our own lives until we figure out how to help meet some of those physical needs. The second idea that we need to consider when living out love and our response to this idea of thirst is don't waste time digging your own well. There's so many aspects, there's so many ways that we can make our lives better, that we can be happy, that we can be entertained, that we can be busy. But ultimately, each of us have one main thirst. And until we fully embrace that knowing Jesus, that being made right through his work on the cross is all we need, we're just wasting our time. We're wasting our energy. We're wasting our money looking for all these other aspects that could meet that need. Another prophet wrote about it years before Jesus came as well. He was writing for God. He said, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. God's like, listen, I got, I got all kinds of water. I, I can meet all of your deepest needs, but you're running around digging all these other wells, thinking if I can just get this other job or if I can just get this other relationship or if I can just make more money or if I can just bury myself in this, whatever. And the problem is we're, we're trying to dig our own well and we keep coming up empty and we're wasting all of our time. And if we would recognize that, that spiritually and emotionally that thirst that we have will not be fulfilled until we turn to Jesus. That life will continue to lack meaning. That we'll miss out on what Jesus truly has for us. And Jesus says, listen, just, just come to me. Jesus doesn't say, come to religion. He doesn't say, come to church. He doesn't say, come to... He says, come to me. That's the answer. And, and, and reading your Bible and coming to church, those are all great things. But the answer has to be Jesus. And until we turn to that as the answer for our thirst, we're just wasting our time digging other wells. And we're wasting our time not having the opportunity to tell other people about what Jesus can do in their lives because we're so busy digging a well that means nothing. The last thing we can learn about thirst and the thirst that Jesus can solve is that living out love includes love for our enemies. The most Christ-like thing that you and I can do is to love our enemy. I am most like Jesus, and you are most like Jesus when we're helping people that we disagree with. When we're serving people that we don't like. When we're serving people that are living a lifestyle we don't agree with. When we're serving people that have a political opinion that's different from us. When we're serving people that we don't like their breath, or we don't like the way they look, or they don't like the culture that they're a part of. Maybe we don't even like the way they talk. Whatever it is, on and on and on. Whatever it is, you and I are most like Jesus when we respond in kindness to people that don't like us. I mean, it's really easy to love those that agree with you. It's really easy to love those that we get along with. Loving our enemies, it it's, doesn't even make sense. Here's the challenge out of Proverbs. It says this. If your enemies are hungry, give them food to eat. If they are thirsty, give them water to drink. 
Can you imagine what would happen if, if each of us, when we, when we got upset with a certain person or with a certain group or, or a culture, what, if, if, they, if they said something or made a decision or had some words or took some action, imagine what would happen. Imagine what would happen when we get upset about something rather than posting our outrage or boycotting a project or marching against what was wrong or, or shouting louder. What if instead... What if we said, how do I just love them? And I'm not, I'm not looking to create a debate with what I'm about to say, and so I'm going to speak really vaguely about this, and you can believe uh, that I agree with you on this. But there was a political decision that was made this last week, and there was a lot of them, so you don't even try and guess. But there was a political decision that was made this last week that really scared me. Like, normally I'm like, ah, God's got it all in control, and I still am, but I was like, this has got me super concerned about where we're at. And so I spent some time after I heard about this, and I was processing like a really, a really heartfelt, a, a, a thoughtful, I was going to really just kind of pour out my heart as a pastor and, and post something and share my concern and speak up. And I was like, somebody's got to say something, and i got to start thinking about how can I stand up and how can I fight for this cause and how can I say that this thing is wrong and somebody's got to do something. And then I started writing this part of the message. And honestly, this morning, I still don't have an answer. But I started thinking, I think I have to change my approach to this. How do I, I started figuring out, how do I begin to live out love for these individuals that I disagree with? Like, my, my opinion hasn't changed. I still think they're truly wrong. My feelings on it haven't changed. But I started to figure out, rather than thinking out my creative post or my creative argument or how I can start a march, how can I give food? How can I provide water to my enemy? I, I should probably sit down with some of you who should help me because I have no idea yet. Because they don't really need food and they don't really need water. There's got to be something I can do. But imagine, just for a second, imagine what would happen. Imagine the message that we would send. Imagine how powerful the love of Jesus becomes when we stop trying to challenge and we stop trying to fight and we start trying to tear down our enemies and instead we're saying, I, I don't know, how, I just want to love you. And not, not because I want to change you, not because I want to get the upper hand on them, not because I want to prove that I'm better. I just want to follow what my Savior did and I just want to live out love. And I want to reveal the thirst that used to exist in my life without Jesus and begin to demonstrate the transformation that Jesus has produced in my life because he's answered a question that I couldn't answer any other way. And every week we provide these green connect cards in your program and the challenge is what is it that you need to do based on what you've heard this morning? How can you respond based on the fact that Jesus said, I am thirsty and he demonstrated his love in action? This gives us a great opportunity to be able to pray for you as God is working in your life. And so as you think about living out love, what's your next step? Maybe your next step is to let Jesus' statement of his thirst develop your faith in him. Maybe your next step is to recognize the opportunity of meeting physical needs and how it creates opportunity for you to speak to people's spiritual needs. Maybe you need to spend some time and consider the other sources you are hoping will quench your spiritual thirst. Maybe there's just something else that, that Jesus has been speaking to you this morning on what you need to do and how you need to respond based on what he's saying to you this morning. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much again for your incredible act by dying on the cross for us. 
Jesus, thank you that you came and, and fulfilled every single prediction about who you are so that we could know for certain that you truly are the Savior of the world. Jesus, would you help us to continually pursue the idea of living out love? That we would look for ways to meet physical needs, that we would, that we would give up on all these other places that we look to answer our thirst. Jesus, that you would help us to begin live, living out love and loving our enemies. Help us to figure out what that looks like in each of our lives. We love you. In Jesus' name.